Well, do take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah. And to see this morning, uh, we're going to be looking together, wait for it, at chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. <laughs> Seriously? And uh, <clears throat> I kind of figured we might get blocked in, you know, by the, the uh, cyclists outside and not get out. So this is as good a thing to do as any if we're stuck here for the rest of the day. So this sermon can be as long as, or short as we want it to be. But seriously, uh, each of these chapters contains a kind of bird's eye view of the world from Isaiah's perspective. He's thinking about nations, peoples around little Palestine, with whom the Jews had various connections over the years. But he's looking at those nations, of course, from the biblical perspective that the people of God is, are set among the nations. That's the, that's the Old Testament perspective. The nation of Israel is set among the nations to be what? To be a light to those nations, to be the visible, visual representation of what it means to be the people of God under the rule of God in the sight of those nations. To be the bearers of a promise, a promise for those nations that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus was making it clear when he said to a Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. It comes from the Jews. Jesus, according to his human nature, is descendant from, descended from David. But he is that in order that he might bring the promise to Abraham for the nations of the world. The church today is set among the nations. You and I in our everyday occupation are thrust into the nations. We sometimes use an expression, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. What uh, God said of Israel is said of the church. In the language of Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's possession. In what sense? We are here to proclaim the excellences of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are the light of the world. So in a sense, what is true of Israel in the Old Covenant is true of the church, the continuing Israel of God in the New Covenant. We are a light in the world, in it but not of it. At least that's, that's the sense that the Bible both Old and New Testament, would have us understand. Now, this is Palm Sunday. We celebrate today Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. We think of the people as they sang their hallelujahs and their hosannas, as they greeted him in the name of the Lord, as they applauded him as the successor to David. They welcomed him as a son of David. They called him the king of Israel. And the question is, what does that affirmation then have to do with life here and now in the world as the church? And the answer is given by these chapters that we're going to look at today. There are three very straightforward things that these chapters together teach, and we're going to do a whirlwind tour of them, uh, and uh, we may come back to look at something 
if I can decide to do that or not. But making decisions right now is not my strong suit. Anyway, here's the first thing that we learn from these chapters. That God is the Lord of the nations. God is the Lord of the nations. One of the affirmations that has repeatedly been made is, of course, that God is the Lord over Israel, over his people. But here, and increasingly in Isaiah up to this point, we find stress the idea that God rules over all earthly powers. We saw that earlier in a prophecy about Babylon, where he showed that even when world history is its most threatening as far as the people of God are concerned, God will take care of his own. He foretold the fall of Babylon, that most serious future threat. He told the fall of Assyria, the immediate threat. And he reminds us at the end of chapter 14 that the promises to David will be fulfilled. Now Isaiah looks north, south, east, and west. And he mentions these nations with which the people would be familiar. And he underlines the fact that God is the Lord of all the nations of the earth, whether it's Philistia or Moab, Assyria or Ephraim, Egypt or Cush or Babylon or Judah. There is no place where God is not Lord. No area of human life or endeavor, no place where God does not stake his claim. Chapter 17, 12 to 14, he is the only locus of power in the world. While everything is going on, there's chaos, there are machinations, there are, there are political movements and so on. What are we told in chapter 18, verse 4? The Lord says, I will quietly look from my dwelling. Nothing moves him, nothing phases him, nothing takes him by surprise. Everything is in the total control of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In an unquite, unspectacular but constant fashion, he works all of history towards his goal, the plan that he has formed, and the purpose that he will fulfill. He is the ruler over all the nations, which means that if he's Lord of the nations, that all the nations are answerable to him. All of the nations are answerable to him. If you read each of these chapters, if you read this section through, you'll find there's a lot of judgment here. That's why I'm not going to take too long on that, because we've been seeing quite a lot of judgment, and we're really kind of judged out here. But we, the, the, the emphasis is, is on judgment, but this time not judging the church. This time the judgment of the nations, whether it's Moab or uh, Damascus or Cush or Egypt or whatever, there's, there's judgment coming to all of these different countries, these different people groups, to Assyria and Philistia as well. There's judgment coming, and that judgment will be an earthly judgment. It will happen in a specific period of history. But all of those judgments are, are warnings of a final judgment in which God will judge all the nations of the earth. In other words, it doesn't matter where people live. It doesn't matter what their socioeconomic background is or their cultural background or their racial or political background is. Everybody, wherever they live, all over the world, whatever their background, everybody is answerable to one God. 
whether they live in a Muslim country or a Buddhist country or a Confucian country or a secular country like ours, everybody is answerable to one God, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was Jesus who said that he would judge the nations. And what is the rationale for this judgment in verse 10 of chapter 17? You have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. In other words, God can look into the eyes of everybody, wherever they are in the world, whatever their background, whatever their cultural input, whatever their religious background, God can look into the eyes of every man, woman, and child and say, you were born with a racial memory of one time in the history of all of humanity when everybody worshipped the same God. Going back to our first parents in the garden and immediately after that, there was a period in human history when everybody worshipped the one true and living God. And from that period, what has happened is that men and women have been putting a lid on that knowledge. They have been suppressing that knowledge, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. But you have to suppress the knowledge of God that you, with which you were born in order to worship anything else or not worship anything else. Whether you, whether you believe there is no God or you believe in God, you believe in something, one way or another you are a believer but unless you're believing in the one God who is there, then what you're doing is you are suppressing, you are putting a lid on the truth with which you were born. Every person has a racial memory of that one God. Every person has written on their conscience the law of this one God, and they suppress that knowledge in their conscience in order, in order to do whatever they do that's against God's Law. In other words, in this chapter, it is being underlined that the one God, the one God who made the world is known by, is known by everybody, whatever they live, whatever nation they're in, even in those days and in our day, everybody has this knowledge of God and are therefore ultimately answerable to and accountable to that one God. God is the Lord of the nations. Secondly, God is the hope of the nations. I said there's a lot of judgment in these chapters, but there is also a lot of love and compassion for the nations in this chapter. You can hear God's voice in chapter 15, verses 5 to 9, as God talks about this pagan nation called Moab. And listen to him. Chapter 15, verse 5, My heart... This is God speaking. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Egleth, Shalisha. That sounds like uh, Lord of the Rings. For at the ascent of Luth, it really does, they go up weeping on the road to Hororium. They raise a cry of destruction and the waters of Nimrin are a desolation. The grass is withered and God is doing what? What is God doing here? He is demonstrating that he is no unmoved mover. He is no emotionless rock. This God is a God of great compassion for all that he has made, whoever they are and wherever they are. He can say in chapter 16, verse 11, Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self 
for Ki Harsheth. In other words, what God is saying, you've heard somebody playing one of those, a harp or something, and, and, and it sounds mournful, painful. My heart feels like that. That's the way I feel. God's heart is for these people. These people are very religious. Uh, they go to their high places. They worship their own gods rather than the true God. But even their religion requires us to feel sorry for them. Look at chapter 16, verse 12. When Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to the sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. In other words, I look at their religious activities. I see them going to their places of worship. I hear them as they cry out to their gods. And I see them as they leave. And they leave as empty, as weary, as burdened, as helpless, as lost as they were when they came. God feels for these people, these pagan people who were going on their own way. God cares for the nations. And God has made a provision for the nations. There is only one way of salvation for all the nations. Turn back to chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, where he's talked about an oracle to Assyria and an oracle concerning Philistia, he says this, chapter 14, verse 34. It's uh, in many ways, it's the key to unlock the rest of this passage. And here it is. God has provided all of humanity, wherever they live, in whatever nation they find themselves, He has provided humanity with one place of refuge and salvation and safety. Listen to what it says. What will one answer? The messengers of the nation. Here is the, the answer. Look at this. The Lord, that is Yahweh, has founded Zion. That's the code word. Not just for Jerusalem in Palestine, but for the heavenly Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. The Lord has founded Zion, the city of God, and in her glorious things of thee spoken Zion, city of our God, in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. There is God's word to all these nations. There is a place of safety. There is a place of refuge. There is a place of salvation. And it's found in Zion and in Yahweh, Zion's God. One way of salvation for the whole world. And so you look at chapter 16. And we're told that there is hope for this pagan nation, Moab. Chapter 15 talks about Moab's judgment. It's a terrible picture of their defiance of God, nowhere more obvious than in their pagan religion. But there is hope even for Moab. There is pity and there is grace in God's call. We know this. We know what perhaps the people of Moab didn't realize, that, that the salvation for the world is going to be centered and focused on David. David as the key figure. Great David's greater son is to be the Messiah, the one figure through whom there's going to be salvation for all the world. And it was a Moabitess, you remember, who married a Jewish man 
who then went and died on her, and she went with her mother-in-law back to, uh, to, Ju to Judah, to the little town of Bethlehem. And she met a man there called Boaz. And Boaz saw her, and Boaz fell for her. And Boaz looked out for her, and Boaz wooed her, and won her. And they got married, and they had children, and she became the grandmother of King David. A Moabitess. There's hope for Moab. And there's hope for Moab in this passage. Because in chapter 16, we find the, the cabinet of the, uh, the nation of Moab coming together and they're thinking about what's gone wrong and they, they make an appeal. They make an appeal to the people of the land, that is to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. They make an appeal and they say, uh, let's appeal to Zion. Let's call on Zion, the city of God. Let's go to them and look for their help and uh, get counsel, verse 3, and justice so that we don't, so that we don't disappear. They appeal to Zion. And if they appeal to Zion and the Lord, uh, the Lord, there will be granted not immunity from the perturbations of life, but they will be promised a future and hope. Look at verse 5 of chapter 16. Then, if they go to Zion, if they go to David, that is David's successor, the Messiah, if they go to the city of God, Zion, the city of God, guess what they'll find there? Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. That is the covenant love of God for His people. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David. In other words, a descendant of David. One who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Do you see what's going on here? Here are a pagan people. A people who have no time for the God of Israel. No time for the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they look to Judah. They look to Jerusalem. They look to Zion. They look to this one Jew who will come, who will be the Savior of the entire human race, the one Savior for every person that will call upon His name. In the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 verse 5, from their race, according to their flesh is the Messiah. House of David, we're told here in verse 5. And David's promises, the promises of God through David and his successor, the Messiah, are for, they're not exclusive, but they're for the whole world. So there's hope for Moab there's hope for Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom that had become so perverted and so debased and that eventually it becomes obliterated as a nation. It becomes obliterated. But the, out of that nation there will be a remnant. There will be some who will believe. In chapter 17, verses 6 to 8, there are some berries left on the branches that have been denuded. The tree that is dead, nonetheless, has one or two, one or two little berries left. There is a there is a remnant. There are a few believers even among northern Israel. And there's going to come a day for the people who represent those ten lost tribes of Israel. There's going to come a day in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 17. A day when people will look to their maker 
and their eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. There's coming a day that even those people, scattered as they are, people of Damascus, people of Ephraim, will look to God alone, and it will be a true conversion there in 17, 6, and 7. In that day, a man will look to his Maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, to the work of his hands. He will not look at what his fingers have made, either the Asherim or the altars of incense. There will come a day when those people will not look at anything they can contribute or do, or work for, or achieve. They will look at the Holy One of Israel. They will look to David, David's greater son, the Messiah. And they'll be saved. There's hope for Ephraim. But chapter 18, there's hope for Cush. Cush was to the southwest. It's described as being beyond the rivers. It's actually being described as the place where rivers begin. And Cush is an old word for the region we know as Ethiopia, where the Nile, for example, begins. And it would be tempting to think, for example, that people that far away and that far south were too far away for, from Judah to have any significance at all. And yet in the Bible, there is significance in Ethiopia. In Psalm 68, verse 31, the psalmist picks up this idea of God, of the people of Cush coming and presenting themselves to the Lord. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Here in chapter 18, Cush, under judgment, comes with a tribute, verse 7, to the Lord of hosts, to Yahweh of hosts. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared far and near, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of Yahweh of hosts. That's a great picture. Fast forward 700 years from Isaiah writing this to a desert road coming from Jerusalem headed south. And there on that road there's an Ethiopian. He's been visiting Jerusalem. While he was in Jerusalem, he went to the local bookshop and he bought himself a copy of what? The prophecy of Isaiah. Now what on earth, what on earth would ever bring an Ethiopian to look for a copy of the book of Isaiah? Probably two things. One, this guy had a lot not going for him. He was a, a eunuch. Children, ask your parents to define that. Uh, and there's a prophecy in Isaiah that says that eunuchs who were barred from the temple under the old covenant law, there was coming a day when eunuchs would be welcome into the presence of God. 
But not only eunuchs, he was an Ethiopian, and he would have gotten the volume of Isaiah because he would have known of this promise, or apparently he discovered this promise, and he took this promise seriously. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth. He'd come to Jerusalem seeking the Lord of hosts. He'd come looking for the God of Israel. And he'd got this copy of the prophecy of Isaiah, and he's reading it. There he is on his Mercedes chariot, making its way south. And as he's looking at it, it was a slow Mercedes because a man comes up beside him, running, jogging. Uh, the kind of Mercedes that I've driven, you couldn't run up against. <laughs> Actually, none of your American cars could even come near it on an autobahn. You're not allowed to do it here, especially in Virginia, but it, as I discovered to my cost. But there he is, and he's reading this thing while his chariot meanders down the road. And you know Philip comes alongside and he says, do you know what you're reading? He says, well, actually, I've got a bit here that I'm stuck at. Isaiah chapter 53. And it talks about somebody wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And I have no idea who he's talking about or what he's talking about. And Philip says to him, it's the one, it's the one that you read about when you were reading earlier about the day when David would bring blessing to the people of Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian believes and he's baptized and he goes on in his journey back home to where he works for Queen Candace of the Ethiopians. And a church is formed that still survives to this day. God's word comes true. And there's hope for the people of Ethiopia. Chapter 19, there's hope for Egypt. Chapter 19. A number of things there, and I think I may come back to this, but here the, here's a kind of brief summary of what we're told there about the hope there is for the land of Egypt. Verse 16, the fear of the Lord. Verse 18, one language, one Lord. Verse 19, true religion. Verse 23, a harmony of worship. Verse 24, one world, one people, one Lord. It's an absolutely amazing prophecy. Egypt, one of the most ancient and possibly the greatest civilization of, the, of the, the ancient world. But like every other great civilization, perhaps taking longer than most, eventually it was to have its day. Chapter 19 describes a terrible civil war as God intervenes to judge the nation. And there's there are records of the way in which the Israelites were treated long ago. If you look at verses 5 to 10, the waters of the sea dried up, the river parched dry, canals become foul, the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up, the reeds and the rushes will rot away. There'll be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile, and all that's sown by the Nile will be parched. It's like reversing the clock back to the days of Joseph, you remember, when he went to Egypt and there was a terrible famine in the land of Egypt. So in the future, there's going to be a terrible period. But that isn't all. This will be a famine of leadership in those days. Verse 11, the princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise and a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Terrible period. 
But that isn't all there is. There is a future. There's a future for Egypt. For those who tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord, that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. That they will speak a language. They will speak a language and swear the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. And in that day, verse 19, there'll be an altar to the Lord of hosts in the midst of the land of Egypt. In other words, I imagine that's fulfilled in Calvary. Calvary where the Lord Jesus died. The, the, the cross, the, the altar, the place of reconciliation comes into the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Egypt is to become a Christian, a godly country, will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And when they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a defender, just like happened to Israel in Egypt. They cried to the Lord and God sent them a savior and defender to deliver them. And there will come a day when God will do that for the Egyptians as well. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord on that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and make vows to the Lord. And not only make vows, but perform them, do those things as well. It's a great prophecy. We ask ourselves, when did that prophecy come true? It already began to come true in the lifetime of the apostles. In the centuries following the death of the apostles, it was Egypt that became the greatest Christian region in the Mediterranean world. It was to Egypt, some of the greatest, or from Egypt, some of the greatest Christian scholars were born. Egypt was, in effect, a Christian nation. Not everybody was Christians, but it was a Christian nation. It was one of the great Christian nations of the period of the first few hundred years of the Christian movement. It became a hub. And that Christian movement that began then survives to this day in spite of, in spite of the ascendancy of Islam and the persecution and marginalization that it has had to endure. Egypt was more of a Christian nation in its day than Britain ever was. That America ever was. It's an amazing story. And the prophecy of Isaiah began to come true. And, and God grant, God grant that there will be yet more blessings for Egypt as well as for us in the future. So God is the Lord of the nations. God is the hope of the nations. And thirdly, God has his people among the nations. Because we need to ask ourselves, who are these prophecies for? Well, they're for the people who are going to read Isaiah. Who's going to read Isaiah? Not everybody in general, but only those who are believers are most likely to read this book. So they were intended for God's people then and now to challenge their compromises and build their confidence. God has his people among the nations. Israel was set among the nations as a testimony to the nations. It became a bit exclusive. It kind of cut itself off. It thought itself superior. 
It began to feel it didn't have to say anything to the nations. It just had to be itself. And so it became narrow and it died. It withered and died. The church of Jesus Christ is set among the nations. I send you out into the world, Jesus said. You are the salt and the light of the world. And the lessons that Israel had to learn in the midst of those nations are the same lessons that we have to learn today. That alliance with the world is a short-term strategy that will bring long-term loss to the church. Let me say that again. Alliance with the world is a short-term strategy that will bring long-term loss to the world, uh, to the church. You see, when the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he's reflecting the very lesson that Isaiah was teaching the people of his day. It covers all of life, morality, values, influence, spiritual loyalty, the whole life, and what Isaiah is saying to Israel and what God says through Isaiah to us is that we're supposed to live a whole life without compromise with the world out there. We can ask ourselves a question as to whether or not we are compromising with the world out there. What are we looking for? What are we linking our lives with? What are we linking our reputation with? What are we trusting in? Have we allowed the values of the world to inform our thinking? Have we become so enamored with the power and influence that the world has that we want to have that too? And so in our communications with the world, do we effectively say to them, now, how can I present what I believe without offending you? Oh, you, oh, you, you, you don't like it when I say that, that Jesus is the only way of salvation for the whole world. Well, maybe we could just uh, not say that quite so firmly. Uh, and you don't like me talking about sin. You'd rather I spoke about making mistakes. Or you, you don't like me talking about Jesus on the cross this good Friday, this, this week when we're thinking of Good Friday. You don't like me to talk about Jesus on the cross providing a penal substitutionary sacrifice. That is a sacrifice in our place that carries a penalty due to us and that he takes. You don't want, you don't want me to talk in those terms. Well, maybe I just won't mention that then. This is happening all around us, by the way, in churches all around us. People are soft-pedaling the truth in order that we won't offend the world in order that the world would keep listening in the hope that if we keep them listening long enough, they'll hear what we have to say except that we've evacuated what we've had to say till there's no meaning left. Not only is that true about what we have to say to the world, but how we have to live before the world. Are we no better than the world in the way we live, in the way we judge ourselves, in the way we live our lives? Are we no better than the world? Here's a second thing. Alliance with the world will change us before it changes the world. Alliance with the world will change us before it changes the world. King Ahaz 
is a case in point. He made an, an alliance with Assyria. Seemed like a good thing at the time. Good idea. There were two kingdoms against them. If I get the Assyrians on side, then, then that would make us very strong. We'll be able to overcome these two nations that are against us. But what does Ahaz have to do to get their alliance on his side? He has to take his own son and offer him as a sacrifice on an altar, killing his own son, because that's what you did in these foreign countries. You didn't just offer an animal, you offered your mother-in-law. That's easy. <laughs> but offering your son? Seriously, that was just to see if you're awake. It was a very serious business, though, back then. Assyrian-style worship comes into Judah, and soon there's occult practices in the temple, and eventually they lose their lamp of witness altogether. And that's really what's happening in the Gospels, isn't it? That the lamp of witness is being taken from Jerusalem and given to the church. Well, I take this time to, to say that in order to get to this point. That what is being taught in these chapters is that the people of God, if they're going to be of any use to Cush and Damascus and Egypt and Assyria and Philistia and Moab, if they're going to be any use to the world, the people of God have to be a distinctive gospel people who point to the Messiah. We have to be a distinctive gospel people. Because what happens and what leads to this disaster, chapter 17, verse 10, is this. You have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, even though you plant pleasant plants and so on, none, none of it will work. Once you forget God, once the church forgets God, it is no longer a witness to the nations. That's why Jesus says to the church, churches in Revelation, he says to them, look, if, if you don't repent, if you don't deal with sin in your midst, if you don't deal with these things, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to take your witness, which has been bright, shining, and powerful, and I'm going to take it away from you. You'll still exist, you'll still meet, you'll still have your services, you'll still go through the routine, but you will not be a power anymore in the world. That's what happened to Ephraim and Judah. And it's a warning. And the only answer is to go back to chapter 17, verse 7, and see what God wants. In that day, man will look to his Maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. People will focus on the God who's revealed Himself. Then in chapter 19, we have this great description of a day special day when there will be a major highway between Assyria and Egypt, where the three powers, Egypt, Assyria, Judah, stand together for the Lord's blessing on the earth. And there's a sense in which that's already happened, isn't it? We find ourselves, Gentiles as well as Jews, converted, looking to the Messiah Jesus, and together, whatever our background, representing the people of God in the world. Well, 
As we wind up this morning, here's my question. As we gather around this Lord's table, do you have the assurance in your own heart? Do you have the assurance in your own heart that you belong to the one place, one people, that God has in all the earth guaranteed to be the place and people of safety and certainty and satisfaction and salvation. And that people in that place are bound up with David, David's greater son, who went into Jerusalem the Sunday before Good Friday and was hailed as him who comes in the name of the Lord, him who comes to be the king of Israel, he who comes to be the savior of the nations, of the world, your savior. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning you would please take your word and write it on our hearts. And uh, in the midst of all the demanding influences that are upon us, cultural, national, international. Help us to find in Christ alone our satisfaction. In Christ alone. To find our place of safety and security. Oh, Christ in Thee, My hope is found. Pray that we would find our way to him today, that our thirst for meaning, our thirst for truth, our thirst for pleasure, our thirst for satisfaction would be met and satisfied. In his strong name we pray. Amen.